0: What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: That's the way I look at the world is selling, doing, being paid. So for any entrepreneur, they have to uh, really consider those three factors. You spend about a third of your time selling your idea, about a third of your time doing the actual work, whether it's a product or whether it's doing services. And then the business side, that is cash flow, money management, people management, that also occupies about a third of the time of any entrepreneur. And some people can do selling really well, but they can't do the work. (laughs) You know the type. Uh, Some people can do the work, but they can't sell their idea. That's uh, kind of a handicap. And some people can really sell the idea, and they can do the work, but they cannot manage money or cannot manage people. And so this really balance of uh, successful entrepreneurs is required.
0: You're listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. I'm Christine legorio Chafkin. Today's episode... Being interesting is overrated. When the first case of the novel coronavirus was detected in the United States more than a year ago, a graduate student at Johns Hopkins University already had his eye on tracking its spread. He had a unique set of skills that equipped him to do it. He had studied epidemics and had been tracking the spread of the virus in China due to his concern for his family there. And as a systems engineer, he was adept at using mapping and data management technology, which was built by a company called Esri. With those skills, he created a thing you've probably had up on your desktop recently, the infinitely useful Johns Hopkins coronavirus tracker. And the software that allowed him to do so is created by a fascinating 52-year-old American company, one that's totally private, has never taken outside funding, has never undergone employee layoffs, and has grown slowly and steadily from a little land-use consulting firm outside of Los Angeles in Redlands, California, since 1969. Its founder and my guest today is Jack Dangermond. He created ESRI, originally the Environmental Systems Research Institute, with a little more than $1,000 in personal savings. And while he had a fascination with the intersection of computing and geography, he was inspired by what he knew best from his childhood.
1: Well, I grew up in a nursery with my parents, which was an entrepreneurial business. They used to be a gardener and a maid, and they realized they had a little family and they wanted to put us in into college because all these rich people said, get your kids educated, and they couldn't do that. So they started a little nursery, and that was very entrepreneurial. Uh, So we all grew up growing plants and nurturing plants and taking care of them and selling them later um, as we got older. Uh, It was an amazing experience because around the dinner table, we talked about all the real practical stuff of running a business, you know, cash flow, uh, making your You know, paying your bills, uh, customer relationships, uh, people that wouldn't pay their bills to us, (laughs) all the trials and tribulations of a business. You kind of, I grew up as a little child and uh, right through college in that environment. So uh, maybe that was an indication.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I I love that you are actually growing things too with your hands. And I I wanted to ask you which came first, Esri, the business or the, the software?
1: Growing up in the nursery, my parents really didn't know where to send us kids to school, but it was in horticulture first and then landscape architecture. That was a sort of profession. Then I studied urban planning. And then finally at Harvard, I got involved heavily into computing and just got excited about it because the combination of landscape, geography, and computing just thrilled me. I could see how we could do quantitative analysis and locate uh, the best site for things, considering all the environmental factors. And that—that—that uh, that, that as a young person—that uh, thrilled me. So I left what I was really educated in—in in, uh, landscape and and horticulture and planning—and moved into this computing world. And to answer your question, I think uh, neither one came first. It was just sort of like co-evolving. And as a young student, I got excited by it. And uh, when I came back to uh, California after my education, uh, I started playing around with different computer companies, and that wasn't really successful. So I uh, started this little company, Esri, with the intention of applying what I'd learned at Harvard, computing and geography and landscape planning, to the private sector rather than being a teacher or a a researcher, uh, I really was attracted to that, going back to my roots, being a kind of entrepreneur. But but frankly, it wasn't about the entrepreneurship that turned me on. It was, uh, I really wanted to apply this stuff for real. And so the only way to do it, since there was no place to go to work, was to start doing little projects for people. And that led to uh, what it is today, actually.
0: Yeah, you say little little projects for people. What were some of the first projects you took on? What were some of the first things you built?
1: Well, I made maps of Southern California air pollution. Uh, this was for the Southern California Air Pollution Control Administration. Uh, and they were thrilled by it because they saw uh, how the patterns of air pollution changed over a 36 hour time period. For the first time, we were able to see how air pollution moved. It was generated in LA and it moved into the into the back valleys and out into the desert uh, over a 24 hour, 36 hour cycle. And that, that showed everybody something that we couldn't see normally. And uh, then there was a park project I remember doing, the helping in the design of a park by using geographic information uh, as overlays to design a regional park here in Southern California. That got me started. Then it was locating a power plant and helping develop the information to lay out ski runs and then route transmission lines and do land use forecasting and it just, took off actually. I wouldn't say it took off. It actually (laughs) required a lot of uh, selling people on the idea of it first. And then they would sort of, you know, semi trusting environment say, okay, I'll give you a little bit more work and a little bit more work. And pretty soon uh, we developed a pattern of, of doing work, but it took about 10 years to develop the methods and the, and the professional practice.
0: So there's this sort of legendary story, which is that you know you started the business with you know a thousand $1, dollars, eleven hundred dollars with your partner, and just filed the name and and started off, and and then didn't you know there's there's this way that companies are built these days in in Silicon Valley and in California, which is take a ton of outside investment and build it with no sort of goal for revenue for years you know and and it just feels like such a far cry from the way that you you built the business slowly and incrementally with that you know original funding from your own pocket and um, and I, I just want you to talk a little bit about that and and how you've you know achieved that steady growth um, over the years
1: well when I first got out of the university I tried working for a soft uh, uh, computer company it really didn't work out in just a few months um, and then i was out and i didn't know exactly what to do but i had introduced myself to some potential customers so i had to sell them on the idea and then do the work and then be paid that's the way i look at the world is selling doing being paid so for any entrepreneur they have to uh, really consider those three factors you spend about a third of your time selling your idea about a third of your time doing the actual work, whether it's a product or whether it's doing services. And then the business side, that is cash flow, money management, people management, that also occupies about a third of the time of any entrepreneur. And some people can do selling really well, but they can't do the work. (laughs) You know the type. Uh, Some people can do the work, but they can't sell their idea. That's uh, kind of a handicap. And some people can really sell the idea and they can do the work, but they cannot manage money or cannot manage people. And so this really balance of uh, successful entrepreneurs is required. And whether you're two or three or five or 10 people, or whether you're two yeah. or three or five, 10,000 people, uh, you know, 5,000 people, it doesn't matter. Uh, a true entrepreneur and a, and a leader of business has to have that ability to move from this to that, to that, to that, to back and forth. And uh, that doesn't happen in the DNA of most people. But there are people that can do it. And they're magical. And it actually doesn't just pertain to business. It also pertains to being a successful academic. You have to sell your idea, you have to carry through, and you have to manage your work so that it's successful. And it's true as a, as a teacher. It's, it's true almost in every successful life. It's true in your marriage life, uh, you know, uh, selling, doing, making sure you manage your money so that you don't, you go bankrupt or something. So uh, I, I find it quite natural. And sitting around the dinner table with my parents, watching them struggle. So my parents never borrowed money either. And that was really important in their life. It was their philosophy to keep their agreements and growing up with that kind of philosophy, they were Dutch immigrants uh, coming uh, coming over and poor. Uh, they were very, very careful, uh, so we were very conservative, and that's the way we were for for really. Uh, we still are that way, frankly, uh, because in order to do good, you have to uh, build. We you have to build this sort of balance in life of. Uh, Money practices and doing practices. When I was a high school student, I wasn't very good at athletics, and it was kind of—I always felt kind of awkward about it, and I was uncoordinated. But uh, I lucked out in in a biology course. The teacher was a the, the coach for cross country, and he said, "Jack, why don't you come over this afternoon and you can run with our people?" and being in sort of uncoordinated, I said, "Oh, okay. Well, I, I guess I could do that." And so he he brought me in, and I started to actually uh, be a cross country runner. And I really wasn't very good at it. I couldn't say that I uh, was good. But what I learned is staying with it. And cross country <laughs> running is like hitting yourself over the head with a hammer. It feels good when you stop, you know. <laughs> but on right. the other hand, on the other hand, it teaches you a certain discipline. And um, so I was very fortunate and ran cross country for years uh, and uh, continued running uh, through most of my career. But it, it taught me that you don't go for the short term, you stay with it. And uh, that, that uh, was a, a very valuable thing for me. Uh, again, if you're doing business like I've done it without money, you do it very carefully and you're in it for the long term. You're not in it for the, the sprinter glory no, you're you' a steady plugger. And I'm not again saying that's not for uh, that my way is for everybody, but at least for me, it's been an important ingredient. and people might call it a conservative business. and yes, but uh, if you play this way and you have the patience to do it, you can very gradually accumulate the wealth that allows you to have a sustainable business. And that has been my philosophy and part of our success. And frankly, our, our customers like that. They know that uh, if they work with us, and we have about 350,000 organizations uh, that are our customers, uh, they can count on us. They can count on uh, not sort of jerking them around because our, our philosophy is to support them. And they come into our world uh, as uh, a trusted relationship because they know we're not in it for the short term. Uh, we're in it for long-term uh, development.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, and, and you've been around more than 50 years now, is that right?
1: Yes. That's it's incredible.
0: Um, and and running this now massively international organization, how many, do you know how many offices around the, the world you have?
1: Uh, it's over a hundred, but I, I couldn't really say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, we did an interesting uh, strategy Normally, public companies uh, or uh, venture capital-based companies are interested in owning everything. But in our case, we were interested really in the technology and getting it used. This is our sort of sense of purpose. And it turned me on as a young kid in school, and it still gets me totally excited. So how we organized our business uh, was to not own businesses around the world are not one one mega company. We have uh, what we call international distributors. Sometimes they carry our name, like Esri France, Esri Germany, Esri Australia, Esri India, and so on. Uh, And we own small pieces of them, but each one is owned by a local national uh, predominantly. And they develop their business for their country and they sell and support and serve, do services around our product in those countries. So I don't have an ambition to own them all, I want to really have an impact of uh, our way of thinking. So my way of thinking is that geography matters. (laughs) Geographic science, which is the science of our world, really is very important, particularly with regards to the challenges that we're facing today, like like the COVID uh, pandemic, like climate change, like uh, biodiversity, like Um, issues of water scarcity, like the issues of overpopulation, all of the things that the UN cares about in what they refer to as their global sustainability goals are reflected or can be seen through maps and underlying geographic information. So we have a passion to be able to advance the basic tools that allow people to see the world through maps and do analytics underneath those maps. We call it spatial analysis that understands patterns and relationships about how the world works. And then not just see them, but understanding precedes action. It's a foundation for action. So our tools increasingly are used by designers and planners and environmentalists to be able to do uh, holistic planning bringing all the elements of science together, overlaying them like overlays of maps and modeling their relationships to pick uh, to pick the the areas that are most important for conservation or to pick the areas that are best to locate Starbucks. One of our customers, (laughs) you know, or route trucks like UPS routes their trucks every day. They save about $400 million a year on our platform because they can optimize routing. And that only saves money, but it saves carbon uh, into the atmosphere. So our geographic information systems, our computer mapping and geographic information systems, basically drive efficiency in organizations. That's number one. Second, it helps organizations see and understand and communicate. And whether it's uh, the elections or whether it's the, uh, um, you know, the the environment, or whether it's uh, uh, land use patterns or new town planning, it really helps them see and understand all the intricacies of the relationships of the way it is. Some people refer to it as like a digital twin of reality. But then it also it also it also it also helps them pick the right location, you know, like like the Starbucks or Walgreens or or uh, or hundreds and hundreds of businesses get the geographic advantage by using our tools. Uh, I'm talking a lot about the tools that we build, uh, and I hope you get sort of a sense of the passion that my colleagues and I have because we can see that these tools make a huge difference in our future. And I won't be around 50 years from now, but I I do know that uh, our users are like fanatical (laughs) in trying to to, uh, address these big challenges with our tools, and uh, this, this excites me. It's almost like a religion, science religion uh, of um, applied science religion that says the geographic data and real data science can matter to uh, the way people make specific decisions, the way we put our footprints on the planet, and the way that we evolve the planet. So we, we often talk about this idea of um, our work is about building a a kind of geographic nervous system for the planet. And our users are sharing each other's data. They're overlaying each other's maps and collaborating in this more holistic way. Um, so we call that geospatial infrastructure. But I'm way off of the subject. Uh, oh, no, Christina. that's fine.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's very impressive because that that geospatial infrastructure did not really exist outside of academia, right, before you, you started ESRI.
1: The concept's. Uh, The concepts keep floating around in different people. We we basically take the internet and then we link geographic data services to the internet. And what you can do is dynamically overlay maps from one server or another server on top of each other and sort of see the relationships and patterns. Let me be real. Like uh, on Long Island, it's been uh, theorized that, you know, there's more breast cancer. Why? Why? well, if you overlay environmental data on top of it, you can begin to see some of the clues of uh, why this might happen. Uh, and I don't want anybody in New York freaking out about <laughs> that, but I, it's a very interesting yeah, example yeah. of shockingly relationships between geographic phenomena mean something. And then uh, Understanding precedes action. So by creating geographic understanding, and certainly the COVID stuff is is, uh, very real for people today, then they can act better. Like my users, uh, I mean, I'm not doing this. We just build tools, but our users are, you know, picking the right sites for for testing in Georgia, picking the right sites for vaccination, which are related to travel distance to populations. And you layer into that issues of um, diversity of populations, uh, racial equality, uh, you know, the haves, the have-nots, the digital divide. All of this stuff can be seen spatially, and we're bringing it together, suddenly it's like your mind does. You know, people often have said, oh, they didn't think of this or they didn't think of that. But using geography and geographic information and GIS, we can bring all of those thoughts together and uh, not be, you know, uh, uh, making as many mistakes. So that's the world that I live in, Christine. I I really love it. And uh, our users, these GIS professionals uh, sort of swarm together and and learn from each other. So I see this as a kind of evolution, you know, from initially in my life doing little projects to, then to build little systems that were software tools to building, actually enterprise systems, and now the next big step is to geospatially enable society so that they can see and understand things that that are going on, real data and real science, and then start to correct like the big challenges of climate change. My gosh, we still have non-believers. My gosh, we need to be able to inform them like we did with COVID maps, the great work of Johns Hopkins, so that everybody sort of sees how it spreads and how it connects. And then we can not only understand it, but then do the things that we need to do, decarbonize uh, our society, uh, one of them that's big, enact. Uh, act. So uh, you are asking about my company. At some point, we, we shifted from this idea of making a living or surviving. <laughs> this took us about 10 years into it. Uh, to the idea of serving. We direct about a third of our revenue to R&D. So behind me here in one of the buildings is uh, the center of our R&D work. And we spend about $350 million a year on R&D. And then that goes back to our customers in the form of the maintenance subscriptions that they have on our tools. So in other words, we run the company like a little heart pulse the money comes in. We prioritize it based on what our users want to do, and also the new technologies. And then we spend it, <laughs> and it's sustainable. Uh, and our users are part of the actual organization because we are in service. And again, I don't suggest that that can be done by every uh, company at all. I mean, it's important to pay for, you know, pay attention to customers. But we are a unique organization in how we have evolved uh, what we are doing in that regard.
0: When we come back, I'll ask Jack about some of his 350,000 customers and how his company helped out after the pandemic hit. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data and information in one AI powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. What's the thing you're most excited to be working on uh, with the R&D lab right now?
1: There are, I think, maybe two dozen new uh, technologies that are coming together. So every year we advance our tools with new versions and the advances of new tools have something to do with what our users ask for. Uh, It also has something to do with the new technologies that we embed or integrate with. And then it has something to do with this sort of inspiration that our Uh, researchers, and there's a few thousand of them there, uh, have in their brain. They just, you know, they bring these two, three things together, and then they have really good engineering quality. So uh, somebody asked me the other day, what's going to be the big disruptive thing this year? Uh, And I got to thinking, "Hmm, is it AI and machine learning? That's one of them. Is it integration of big data, spatial big data? That's one of them. Is it uh, opening up with open source APIs so that all the developer community can have access to all of the rich data that our users and ourselves are building? Maybe that's one of them. Uh, Is it advanced 3D visualization? That's one of them. Is it integration of more satellite information for real-time observation? That's one of them. Is it more real-time GIS where you have billions of things moving around like the connected cars and using that to be able to analyze and create insights into traffic pattern? That's one of them. Uh, Is it better data management? Is it Okay. It goes yeah, I think on you and could on, go on. Right? right? You get right, the idea. Right. <laughs> it, so uh, I think what it actually turns out to be that I'm most excited about is this concept we mentioned early, which is geospatial infrastructure mm. that is emerging on the planet. And it's like the web, except it's like a geo web. It's all this information with little bright lights shining and nodes in the network that can be hoovered up dynamically overlaid to create insights. Now, it's only early years in this, uh, but I think this is a new architecture built on what's called web services, being able to stream out information from any server or cloud and then unite them or overlay these maps on top of each other to create insights. That, That architecture is not the mainframe architecture. That architecture of distributed services is not the the workstation or PC architecture. It's not the connected PCs architecture. It's not the architecture of servers on the web. It's not the architecture of um, big databases uh, putting it. No, it's a distributed services based system. Well, there's lots of distributed server based technology, but this has the unique capability of being able to take the data streaming from different servers and using geography or location overlay these uh, distributed services to create the whole. It's like, <laughs> it's really it's wow. so exciting. Wow. Okay. And I also that, just
0: wish our listeners could see your amazing hand gestures right now because you're they're making kind of m- pulsing mountains and a pulling string in the middle and <laughs> then you hear the <laughs> clap. So... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, your enthusiasm is, is just uh, remarkable. And I'm sorry, I cut you off before you're, you finished your last sentence there, though.
1: No, but that's what excites me, yeah, Christine. Yeah. So there was a time when Paul and Bill, Bill Gates uh, and Microsoft had this vision. I think it was in the mid-90s I read about it. And one time I think Bill was talking about it at dinner. They had this vision and they talked about this idea. Uh, one day, every organization will have a desktop in the world. Isn't that amazing? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, of course, they built, they built Microsoft with Windows and uh, the amazing company that it is today. And it continues to evolve now with cloud and Azure and so on out of that fundamental vision. And it's evolved now to cloud uh, technology. I have a vision also that one day, not too long from now, every organization in the world will have access to geographic information to be able to make their company or business or their government agency or their NGO better so that they can see data uh, in the same frame that uh, the wealthier uh, customers that we have can do today. They can get the geographic advantage. So this will happen by way of this geospatial infrastructure. there will be the people that build the data. They'll serve it out like Johns Hopkins is doing today. Um, or. Uh, Hundreds of thousands of other organizations are now making geographic data available as web maps uh, for interaction by citizens and interaction by uh, normal people. Uh, one day, every organization on the planet, whether it's a small little village in uh, Rwanda or in uh, you know, South Asia, uh, these, these organizations will see what's going on they'll be able to better understand and be able to better act. So again, I just say that's that's my vision and I'm going for it. Uh, That is working with my customers which are continuing to expand globally to get them this kind of technology that allows them to do their work better. And I mean, we need to do this. (laughs) My, My big passion is how are we going to address climate change? Just take that one example. How are we going to stop destroying the lungs of our planet? Um, you know, the, the Amazon, the uh, the Congo, uh, how do we stop the sort of rototillers of destruction that are occurring uh, on the global scale? Uh, we gotta get everybody involved because if everybody understood that we're ruining the next generation's ability to survive or sustain itself, what you know, people would, would move. They're not dumb. They're not dumb. Uh, but they need to understand it, so right,
0: right. And putting, I mean, how do you get that information out there in front of people? The way that the COVID trackers are are out there in front of people, and and everyone's fascinated with those. You know, um, yeah. it it does affect our our lives and future generations' lives. But it's a matter of not just building the tools, but but publicizing them at some point, right?
1: Uh, it's about publishing One of our advantages: we have these three hundred and fifty thousand organizations. One of those is, for example, to make it real, one of those is uh, uh, the department, uh, you know, well, nine of them are in New York City. They're the <laughs> you know, the, the city department, sure, sure. uh, housing, uh, transportation, the subways, the port authority, et cetera. Those are mm-hmm. all users. And also in the federal government, the Department of Interior, USGS, uh, 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 the Census Bureau, EPA, they're all our users virtually 30,000 cities actually are users they run the city like new york does or los angeles does or san francisco does on our platform uh, people are not really very conscious of this but they're uh, you know we say cities run on Esri all over yeah. the world yeah and, i was going to ask you what,
0: what percentage of your customers are are governments or cities
1: over half wow. are uh, uh, we have uh, i think about 26% of them local and state government. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's an equal amount in federal government, a little bit more. And when I say federal, I mean really national governments because what we do here in the US is replicated in France and England and China and Australia, et cetera, and Latin America countries. And then uh, we have uh, the majority of utilities in the United States, like 80% of them use our platform. And globally, about 40% of them do to really run their business. So uh, to answer your question, when COVID hit, we built a series of templates like the COVID tracker templates. They're dashboards that people can stand up and uh, make available. And we made those freely available to all of our customers around the world. And there were over 5,000 deployments of these dashboards, uh, like in uh, like in the city, uh, like in the state of Maryland, like in the state of Georgia, like in the state of California, like in the Ministry of uh, you know health in Germany, and the Ministry of Health in France. All, you just it just repeats itself all over the world. These were templates that our customers were able to download, open source templates that they stood up on top of their GISs and boom, within a few weeks, we actually had uh, a huge deployment of being able to see what was happening with COVID in real time. When the racial equity issues happened and the great tragedies of last summer, uh, we also developed, one of my uh, colleagues, uh, Clinton Johnson, uh, developed with his colleagues a series of templates about mapping racial equality and the impact of that in reference to capital expenditures in cities or other behaviors going on. And these maps suddenly were able to be seen on the web by citizens uh, who wanted to become engaged with our communities and do something about this, as well as the agencies and organizations themselves. And these agencies and organizations run from big government to big NGOs, like the Audubon Society is embracing this same kind of template, to little mom-and-pop companies. They're, They're all interested. They have to see it to believe it often. And that's really where uh, we can do a lot as an organization, I guess is what I'm saying, by being able to build these cool tools and then let our users deploy them. We don't actually do the work. We just build cool tools that that allow them to do their work better. And uh, on some of these issues, there's no money for them uh, in the area of education and conservation. Those are two big ones that have my heart and uh, my colleagues' hearts and minds. And these times with COVID uh, we saw it uh, happen. We were able to pivot. We made business adjustments and we kept going. So we were able to have keep our sustainable business going by pivoting to support our users in these difficult times. That is, come up with the templates that make our tools responsive to COVID. First, mapping the cases. Second, doing the analytics to help uh, understand the forecasts of where the disease was going and then overlay the mapped forecasts on top of facilities to understand its impacts on icu beds and then be able to pick out you know uh, optimum sites for vaccinations and optimum sites for uh, testing and so on and it will continue with dashboards that inform highest levels of government let me just say it that way
0: right absolutely um i mean what what happened at esri itself when the um when the pandemic hit um did you also guys all go virtual uh, while you're probably just getting inundated with requests from governments for all this information and ways to ways to map it
1: well what happened first is that within a week we were all virtual we have five thousand employees here in the u.s and uh because of our strong investments in i.t and communications, we were able to accomplish this. Our IT people—I don't think that they foresee this coming, but they foresee—they saw digital transformation—and uh, we, so we were able to make those changes very quickly. And it, not everybody wants to work from home—that's uh, for sure—and it's you know it's a headache with kids and Zoom meetings and those sort of things. So our people are very anxious to come back and see each other and be together, you know, connect and. Uh, Our general philosophy is that we will continue to work in offices in the future uh, and with with options to do other things. Uh, So, nope, nope. Uh, I would say that that's how we dealt with it. And then we had almost uh, day and night meetings for months of how we would be responsive to help our users in this uh, very difficult time. Uh, For example, virtual training, because we offer, uh, you know, Instructor-led training on technology and methods. So we pivoted there. Uh, our technical support, which is a global operation, by the way, uh, was able to uh, move to a, a distance or a virtual technical support. Our consulting operation, which is nearly a thousand people, does now virtual consulting with people. And we had to we had to learn these new methods, but we did it quickly. So we did it so fast that uh, I wouldn't say. Uh, We did it seamlessly, but our business had continuity and our users really appreciated it and our employees really appreciated it. We didn't put them through the ringer of this or that. No, Uh, our company's philosophy is, First, we serve our users, and second, we serve our employees, and third, we aspire to make money so we can do one and two better.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's great. And and you also um, donated millions—I think sixty million—in in software and services to to government agencies and educators. Um, how how did that look during during the pandemic?
1: Well, people that didn't have our software that had a need for it, we were very generous about it. Uh, We have a division of the company called the Disaster Relief Program, DRP. And anytime there's a fire, earthquake, hurricane, uh, we mobilize with free software for those affected, whether it's here in the US uh, or overseas. And we work collaboratively with organizations like the Red Cross, FEMA, or international aid organizations of all types. This is a dedicated staff and they have a stand-up way that we can get get out our technology where it really matters. So that, uh, that has, our users appreciate that because it's kind of this extra overlay of services. I mean, we also uh, donate our software to all NGOs on the planet, especially in conservation has been uh, where we've made a, a huge difference. There are now, I think, over 11,000 conservation organizations who do mapping and do geographic analysis using our tools. And these range from the big ones like Audubon or the Nature Conservancy uh, or Conservation International, all the way down to little watershed units in New Jersey who are really trying to protect lands. Uh, and uh, with this new administration, there's a lot of emphasis to something called 30-30. And 30-30 is about protecting 30% of the land or ocean of the world. Uh, For biodiversity by 2030, this must be done. Uh, The great uh, biologists like E.O. Wilson at Harvard and others, uh, Peter Raven uh, in Missouri, uh, and Paul Ehrlich—they've all been sort of looking at a kind of clock of loss of biodiversity uh, that that we're sort of, uh, and they suggest that we're sort of overstretched. It's just like overstretching what you spend in your life christine you're careful i'm sure you're not overspending what you get in the way of income (laughs) if you can if you continue to do it uh pretty soon you go bankrupt or there's well there's no bankruptcy law in the natural world right and what we keep uh theoreticians suggest that we're about 1.5 times the sustainable life on the planet to sustain human beings and so we've got a We've got to protect what we have left uh, from a, uh, a biological perspective. So people got to work hard on that.
0: Right, and and so this is something that you're passionate about as a company, and also yes. passionate about as as an individual. Um, you yes. and your wife have signed the giving pledge. Um, can you can you tell me more about just your your plans for the future, your plans for your wealth? Do you have them in specific yet, or is that still like in the works?
1: Well, we don't sit on a large treasure of wealth. We spend it. Uh, and primarily, we spend it uh, on uh, serving our users. But we have had personal wealth that we've donated to conservation over time. And yes, that's our commitment, that our wealth will not stay. We don't have children, so we don't really have that uh, that uh, responsibility. So our resources are focused on uh, donating to conservation activities. But right now, we're doing it actively.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Great. great.
1: So, I mean, people have estimated the value of our company, but it's all kind of what I think malarkey, uh, because, uh, you know, it's like if we were a public company, we would be worth so and so amount of money. It sounds like we really would be very wealthy, but uh, the reality is we're just running a business, <laughs> And <Yeah. laughs> whether it was, you know, 10 people or 10,000 people, it doesn't really matter too much uh, if, if you're really responsible. There's not this uh, huge amount of wealth that's there.
0: Yeah, and, and what advice would you have for folks who are maybe just starting up with a company or have a small business and and want to make sure that that it's a robust organization in 50 years, want to make sure it's around for 100 years? Is there a way? Is there are there some guiding principles aside from the kind of the three pillars you talked about earlier that just that they can kind of ground themselves in?
1: Well, I think first one of the things that's guided my life is to be interested, not interesting. Mm. And I've said that on repeated cases, a very important guy in my youth suggested that phrase to me and it really grounded me. A lot of people walk around, they wanna be interesting looking, interesting acting, be sort of an interesting new startup and interesting this and interesting that. Uh, But it's very rare that you find somebody who's really genuinely interested like when you meet a person personally and they're interested in you, wow, you say, wow, this is, what a nice person. <laughs> or when I go to parties, you know, I, I don't try to act interesting. I try to act interested. And boy, I can really, everything calms down in my own uh, emotion by being interested in other people. Uh, it's it's a much more steady and uh, guiding light. And in business, uh, same thing is true. Uh, now I realize people have to look interesting in order to get Stockholder investments. You know they do all kinds of rigmarole dances in front of uh, you know investors in order to get them uh, to be interested in putting money in their thing. But um, in my world, uh, I just say that that's one thing that you should everybody should seriously think about is if you're really interested in a cause, you're interested in whatever it is, and making money may be one of those things. Um, uh, life becomes more manageable and more sustainable.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's sort of a generosity of spirit to be open to, yeah, to, to you know, just the curiosity and and openness. Less, yeah. e-
1: less less egotistical mm-hmm. is the way I would look at it. Yeah, absolutely. You get a lot further by uh, in life. Uh, another one is, I, I mean, I strongly adhere to uh, not borrowing money. Bankers don't want to hear that. Investors don't want to hear that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it uh, has allowed me to keep my uh, idealism and uh, continue to uh, see my own life as able to uh, matter. Uh, And so other people don't really uh, care so much about that. And they can, I don't want to say sell their soul to investors, but if there is somebody that's really genuinely interested in something, like whether it's playing a guitar or, uh, or starting a business of some sort, uh, it's much more stable to not uh, monetize your life or monetize the potential of your idea. It's for, for me, it's just building your idea into a long-term, you know, running like a cross-country runner.
0: Well, thank you so much, Jack, for for speaking with me today. After talking with Jack, it's of course totally remarkable, his sheer enthusiasm for the very fundamentals behind the software his company builds, more than five decades into building it. He's super passionate about helping the world by visualizing data through mapping and the vast array of applications for it, from fighting fires to city planning to massive conservation efforts. This clearly drives him and drives his business in a remarkably rare and sustainable way. And he drives it all using an, as he says, magical balance of three skills that entrepreneurs and really anybody needs. He lays it out in this way. You spend about a third of your time selling your idea, about a third of your time doing the actual work, and a third on the business side, cash flow, money management, follow-up, people management, those things. It's an almost disturbingly clean way of looking at how we use our time in life, and in work. It's so straightforward. And that's part of how Jack operates too. He says he's been guided by something he was told early on, be interested, not interesting. There's no need for flash when some of the most impressive things you can do are simply be interested in other people, in their stories, in their problems, and in their dreams. And being interested helped Jack Dangermund build a $1 billion global company that he's still in the driver's seat at today. That's certainly something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. If you're a new listener, welcome. Please hit subscribe to What I Know so you don't miss our next episodes. If you have a friend interested in startups, entrepreneurship, or evolving as a leader, please send them a link to our show. Also, we'd love it if you could leave us some stars and a review on Apple Podcasts. It just takes a minute and it really helps other people who'd love this podcast find us. You can drop us a note anytime at Inc.com. Tell us whose story you want to hear next on our show. You can also let me know right on Twitter at Legorio. Our producer, who, like Jack Dangermond, is not retiring anytime soon, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio-Chapkin, and thank you for listening to What I Know.